0: Here's an interesting little piece of trivia. This service that you are sitting in is the 800th service in the history of True Vine. So, in about two years, I'll probably say this is the 1000th service. But you've got to come back for that, okay? All right, this morning we are continuing this series on, uh, well, that we're calling We Believe. And the purpose of this series is to help us as a church establish you know, what we find to be our foundational doctrines and beliefs. A few years ago, three years ago to be precise, we taught through a very similar series called First Things First, where we wanted to establish you know, that we see the Bible as God's word and everything that that means to us and that the Bible is the source that we uh, get our doctrine and our theology from. This is where we get our worldview from. Uh, so we did that last week. We talked about the Bible, its inspiration, its authority, uh, and a few other principles. Well, we covered the inerrancy, authority, inspiration, and uh, there was a fourth uh, word we looked at, but I forget. I was there, but I don't remember exactly what it was. But this morning, we're going to look at uh, a new concept. Well, it's not new, but it's, it's, we're going to refresh uh, a concept that is also foundational to how we view God. My favorite quote, and I've said this many, many times here, is from a man named A.W. Tozer. And he said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the way we think about God is crucial to our spiritual life. If we think about God the right way, it's going to put us in alignment. It's going to fill us with joy. It's going to fill us with hope. But if we think about God in a way that is wrong or in a way that doesn't really reflect the reality of who he is... Uh, it's going to mess a lot of stuff up. Our, our thoughts, our emotions, our decisions are going to get just, they're going to be thrown totally out of whack. So I want to start this morning with a mystery. Uh, I, I, two weeks ago, I talked about the mystery of God in Christ and Christ in us. Uh, today, I want to start off talking about another mystery and something that is perhaps even more mysterious than Jesus, and that is Marriage. I have no idea how to be married. Uh, my, my wife says it's really easy to be married to me and I say, oh shucks. But uh, no, she's never said that actually. Um, marriage is, is a mystery, man. I, for those of you that are married, I think maybe you'll understand what I'm saying, that how to successfully Walk out a biblical marriage and a successful marriage is kind of mysterious. There's some some things about it that are difficult to understand, and they're kind of either intuitive or counterintuitive, depending on uh, how you approach things. But mystery is is uh, marriage is kind of mysterious, and there's two particular mysteries that I think uh, people can get tripped up on. And I'm not preaching on marriage today. I just want to use this to get our minds going the right direction. Uh, what are the mysteries of marriage is that two people become one. And that's actually necessary for the marriage to be successful is that the two distinct people have to become one. And, uh, that's, that can be challenging because you can stand up here at the altar and you can say your vows and you dress up real nice and you spend a lot of money and you light a candle, but then you have to go home. And you find out that they like the bed to feel one way and you like it to feel the other way. And they like uh, their food cooked one way and you like your food cooked the other way. And they want to watch this show and you want to watch that show. And all of a sudden the romance begins to get tested by reality. This is why cars now... have climate control where it's 72 degrees on this side but 73 degrees on that side that's the car manufacturer saying your marriage is a sham that's a joke guys okay (laughs) is this going to be one of those days okay that's that's the challenge like you, you you're distinct people but in marriage you're saying we're one and that's It's a mystery, and it's difficult. Another one of the mysteries or challenges of marriage is that how do two equal partners submit to one another? Can you submit and maintain equality at the same time? Now, biblically, I believe that you can do that, but culturally, we often view submission as a sign of inferiority. But biblically, submission is not a sign of inferiority. Submission is actually a sign of maturity. And in Ephesians 5, I'm not going to get into Ephesians 5 that deep today, but Ephesians 5 is the passage it talks about. This is, uh, I have this, this is my life verse. It's tattooed on my arm. Wives, submit to your husbands. Um, yeah, yes, Kendra. That's just Kendra, okay? She's my only wife. Uh, That's often where people start when they think about marriage, but if they would just back up one verse, it says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the verse that says wives submit to your husbands is not saying who should submit to who, it's saying how you submit. So as a wife subjects herself to her husband, she does so by showing honor and respect but the way a husband subjects himself or submits himself to his wife is by loving her the way Jesus loves the church. And so it is possible in marriage, biblically, for two equal parties that are equal in value and equal in worth to both submit themselves to one another. Now, this is like mysterious and this difficult to understand thing, and I've done enough pre, you know, marriage counseling and premarital counseling and weddings to know that this is a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. I think also in our culture, there's a big fight right now about uh, whether men and women are equal or are they different, and I'm saying yes to both. They're equal and different, and it seems like we can't wrap our head around that you can be different and equal, that those two things don't uh, exclude one another, that equality and distinctness... Don't separate one another, you can be both. Now, I think that we would understand a lot of these things better if we could wrap our head around the the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is actually foundational for understanding something like marriage. Like, how can there be a community with equality, but also distinctness? Well, let's look at the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You have a community with distinctness, and equality, and even submission, because Jesus submitted to the Father. Jesus submitting to the Father doesn't mean he's not equal to the Father. He's still equal to the Father, but in humility and in maturity, he submits, if that makes sense. So the Trinity, like we would understand marriage better if we understood the Trinity better. You know what else we would understand better if we understood the Trinity? Church unity. We would understand church unity better If we had a grasp of the Trinity because we would understand how there can be community among distinctness as well as mutual submission and and we would understand how that works and so this morning I want to look at the Trinity it's mysterious and it's going to remain mysterious I'm not going to remove I cannot it's impossible for us to remove mystery from the trinity but i want to talk about the trinity and kind of establish this as a groundwork for us theologically so last week we started off with we believe the bible and all of our theology comes out of the bible it doesn't come out of church history it doesn't come out of tradition it doesn't come out of the most coolest book you read it comes out of the bible okay now we're going to look at how the idea of the trinity developed and we're going to go like this we're going to do this historically we're going to look at the Trinity in Moses' day, the Trinity in Jesus' day, uh, the Trinity in Paul's day, and then the Trinity in church history, okay, or the early church days, all right? So I wish that I had like six hours to talk about this, but I don't. I only have two hours. So that was a joke. Some of you looked really concerned when I said that. No, I'll try to take uh, 35 minutes to cover. 3,500 years, okay? All right, so we're going to start with the Trinity and Moses Day. Like, so really quickly, we could go deeper today, but we don't have time. I, we are just starting to discuss the Trinity. Uh, we're not going to cover everything. All right, so at the very beginning of the Bible, uh, what's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. What's the first chapter of Genesis? One, One. very good. Susan wins. Genesis 1 very early in the Bible the first chapter of the Bible we get the creation account after God has created the heavens and the earth and all the animals and plants and everything else the uh, sun and the moon and the stars it's all there he decides that it's time to pre, uh, to create mankind and uh, it says in Genesis and this is most likely written by Moses it says in Genesis uh, God said let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's a lot about this. First, it's important for us to acknowledge that mankind, humanity, is created in the image of God. And that's everybody, no matter what their religion, no matter their race, no matter their gender, every human being is created in the image of God. Therefore, every human being is worth your respect. They're all, they all have dignity. They all are worth honor. They're all worth your respect because they're created in the image of God. And to uh, take away the dignity or dishonor or disrespect another human being is actually to disrespect the image of God in that person. So just let's lay that foundation first. Now, what God says here is, let us, plural, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. So God speaks in the plural here, which I don't know about you, for the first 10 years of my following Jesus, I blew past that. I never noticed that God speaks and says, let us, who's God talking to in this moment. Well, I think the Trinity is having a conversation about the likeness of man and how uh, man's going to be created and the likeness of God. And we find out as we get further into the Bible that uh, the Holy Spirit was brooding or hovering over the waters at creation, right? So the Holy Spirit's present at creation. Uh, We find out later that Jesus we reread this in colossians one two weeks ago jesus created all things and all things were created for him and by him and through him so the father the son and the holy spirit all active and present at creation which is why you have god able to say to the trinity the father son and holy spirit let us create man in our image okay so this is the beginning and The Bible has 1,189 chapters. We're only one chapter deep, and we've already got the seed of the doctrine of the Trinity. Continue in the writings of Moses. Uh, We get to Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Israel... uh, you know, in Deuteronomy, at this point, they've come out of Egypt. Egypt had many, many, many gods, okay? Not only did Egypt have many, many gods, but all the other nations around them had many, many, many gods. The Babylonians, Assyrians, Persians, Medes, all these ancient civilizations would have many gods, and each god had their own job, Uh, There was the God of fertility. There was the God of rain. There was the God of sunshine. There was the God of war. And whichever God you needed in the moment was the God you had to keep happy. And that was the God you had to call on. So if you were trying to get pregnant, you'd pray to the God of fertility and make sacrifices to the God of fertility. The Jewish view of God was so unique in that they said, no, our one God does all of that. Our God of fertility is Yahweh. Our God of war is Yahweh. Our God of healing? Yahweh. Do you understand? Like it's the same God overseeing everything. Um, and that made Israel unique. So Deuteronomy 6:4 is we call this the Shema. This is a significant statement to the Jewish people. They still to this day will recite this or quote this to special occasions, meals, middle of the day. They'll recite this. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. So in the days of Moses, there is a rudimentary understanding that there is one God, but that God exists in some sort of plurality. Even that word one in Hebrew is echad, and it, it's... It's like plural one. I know, we don't even have a word for it. It's like how many clusters of grapes do you want? One cluster of grapes. It's one plural. In fact, that Hebrew word literally means one cluster of grapes. So uh, it's one, but it's a plural one, which is, we don't even have a really, I can't even think of a word we have in our language. Ones, I don't know. Use. So we go from Moses' day to Jesus' day. And there's a a lot of time that passes between Moses' day and Jesus' day, okay? Um, But we get to Matthew chapter 3. This is the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting or remaining on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So there is a a theory, it's not correct, I don't think, that uh, God exists as Father in the Old Testament, but then when he gave the New Testament, he took another mode or transformed into the Son in the New Testament, and then he... In the church age, which we currently live in, he transformed into another mode of the Holy Spirit. So he's kind of like evolved or took on, it's like he put on a different uniform. He was the father, then he was the son, and then he was the spirit. Okay, that was the early church said, nope, that's wrong. They called that a heresy uh, called modalism, that God took different modes. He doesn't take different modes. Here you see all three different people of the Trinity active at the same time. They're all interacting in this story. You have Jesus himself being baptized, coming out of the water. Then you have the Spirit of God descending as a dove. And then you have the Father speaking audibly. This is my beloved Son in whom i I've well pleased. So now you, you, we're starting to see this picture that the Father is not the Son, even though they're equal. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, even though they're equal. Yeah, I mean, you guys know the Holy Spirit didn't die on a cross. The son died on a cross, right? The Holy, Jesus didn't come in tongues of fire at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit did that. So you, you begin to see them as distinct and unique, but still equal, and all three persons are God, yet there is only one God. We're going to keep diving into this a little deeper. Okay, so at the baptism, you see all three active. Even the great commission that Jesus gives Uh, And and gives us a formula for how we are to baptize Jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all nations Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo I am with you always Even to the end of the age. So Jesus's baptism was a Trinitarian experience and he actually is setting the tone that every baptism is going to be a Trinitarian experience because he's telling his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. So as people follow Jesus in baptism, everyone is supposed to acknowledge and introduce and interact with the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you really quickly commercial... If you have not been baptized yet, we are having a baptism and picnic next Saturday in six days. We're running up on kind of cutting it close. But if you're still interested in that, speak to Pastor John Eric. Um, Really quickly, Romans 6 gives us a clear picture of baptism that when you get baptized and we immerse you in water. You are being buried with Jesus and then resurrected. The water represents your grave. In fact, we hold you down there for like 90 seconds just to make it real. No, we don't really do that. Uh, you're under for about one second, okay? I'm, I'm talking, talking people out of it, not into it. Uh, but if you're interested in being baptized next Saturday, you've got to talk to John Eric today. All right uh so the trinity is so central to christianity that we're told to baptize in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit so we go from moses's day to jesus's day now we're going to the apostles day or specifically paul in this case paul saw the world through trinitarian lenses okay he looked at life he looked at ministry he looked at the kingdom of god through trinitarian glasses uh So much so that when he is blessing the Corinthian church at the end of 2 Corinthians, he blesses them with a Trinitarian blessing. And he says this, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Or just wave from across the sanctuary. (laughs) All the saints greet you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so here we go with the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Paul is blessing them with a Trinitarian blessing. Father, Son, and Spirit are all referenced and recognized. Uh, Paul, in Ephesians 4, is actually teaching the church in Ephesus about how to be united. And I was saying earlier that if you want to understand church unity, you really have to understand the Trinity. how can how can you have multiple persons but treat everyone equally and have respect and honor for one another and have submission play its proper role so when paul is giving them a little teaching about church unity he says there's one body and one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling one lord one lord referring to jesus in this case one faith one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So again, Paul, uh, yeah, this is Paul, is teaching them about unity, and he uses the Trinity for, their example, uh, for his example. And then Peter, uh, in his first epistle, does a similar thing. He just says, I'll, I'll pick up in verse 2, because I'm not going to teach the whole passage, but according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with his blood. So here we have Peter, Paul, Jesus, Mary. Peter, Paul, and Mary? No? Okay. Peter, Paul, and Jesus, they're all operating with this Trinitarian perspective. Uh, This is important because sometimes we treat the Trinity like it's this uh, throwaway doctrine, like it's this unimportant thing. Um... The early church did not function that way. The church in Acts, the apostolic church, saw the Trinity as central. And I want to, so now we're going to move into the early church days, and I'm going to show you, uh, well, just one thing. Um, I want to show you the Apostles' Creed. And I'm going to ask Neil if he would come up and help me. This is Neil Lawson. Come on up, Neil. So. Really quickly, so that you don't get confused, I'm not speaking to you. The Apostles' Creed is not in the Bible, okay? So I'm not teaching you, you can have this. I'm not teaching you that this is scripture, okay? This is something that came after scripture, uh, but it's helpful. So, uh, Neil. Now, Neil is- Neil, <laughs> Oh, is it on? Yeah, it's on. Can you un- uh, unmute that handheld mic? Neil is an Episcopal priest. I was baptized in an Episcopal church when I was, well, I was about 10 or something like that. So, Neil's an Episcopal priest. Neil is always dropping knowledge on me. So, I thought I would bring Neil up here. Neil, tell us a little bit about the Apostles' Creed. Like, give us a little background on this.
1: Sure. Um, you might ask yourself, did they have lots of new Testaments just floating around in the early church? No. They did not. No. They had some manuscripts that the scribes copied down and they saved, and various churches in various locations had different collections of apostolic writings. But they were not commonplace, and if you wanted to study the New Testament, you couldn't because they were not written yet. Like at our age, we have a printing press and we print all kinds of uh, Bibles. You can go down here to the thrift store and find tons of Bibles probably in there. So think of the Apostles' Creed Coming from the Greek word credo, which means I believe, and as a distillation or a condensation of what Christians believed in the early church, what the New Testament actually taught. And that was necessary because people did not have access to New Testaments. So this is a kind of use that as a kind of
0: it's a summary. This is a summary because they couldn't just crack open a Bible because they weren't available. So they had to teach these summaries. So Neil is going to read through the Apostles' Creed for us. Uh, It's just two slides. So Neil, you want to read through that with us? Sure.
1: I believe in God, uh, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven
0: and sits at the right hand of God, the Father the Almighty. With okay, so Neil. It says the Holy Catholic Church. Why is that phrase included?
1: Uh, do not be confused with the Roman Catholic Church. That's how we use it. That's how it's used in our day and age. Catholic here means generally universal. It's a reference to the one body, uh, like in Ephesians 4, that uh, the, the verses from Ephesians that the pastor just put up there. There is one body and one spirit. Mm-hmm. And that's a reference to the universal church. That's what Catholic means here. So don't get it confused. Yeah.
0: Right. And then one more question. There is a distinct structure to the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. What is the structure based on?
1: It's based on the Trinity. Uh, In the first, the first slide is unclear, but it's. The, the first part is, has to do with God the Father. He says, I, When people were baptized in the early church, they'd say, do you believe in God? And you say, I do believe in God, the Father almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And they say, do you believe in Jesus? And he said, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered in Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Those are the essential facts of the matter. Yeah. And so the creed was to illustrate that. And it's what it's tripartite. The the last section is has to do with I believe in do you believe in the Holy Spirit? So I believe in the Holy Spirit, um, the Holy Catholic Church, that is the universal church. Yeah. All the things that fall under I believe in the Holy Spirit are things that have to do with specifically with the Spirit. For instance, the whole idea of the communion of saints is dependent on The Holy Spirit. Christians, there's Christians that live in the city there, right? We had a uh, we were praying for the city of Philadelphia. Well, the reason that churches are one and can do that is because of the Holy Spirit. Sure. And it makes us common. We have common faith.
0: So it's
1: tripartite or three parts. Right, all right. Demonstrating the
0: Trinity. All right, let's give Neil a round of applause real quick. And just so you know, we did not rehearse this. I just said, Neil, can you come do this? I did give him a week's notice. But... All right. So this is the Apostles' Creed. This was developed around 140, whoops, 140 AD. So just about a generation after uh, the, the New Testament was being completed. So this is some fresh stuff. I mean, this is like people who might have seen or heard Paul firsthand putting this stuff together, potentially. Um, The church, for the last 1,860 or so years, has seen the Apostles' Creed as a reliable, not authoritative in the sense of Scripture, but a reliable summary. Even when they get Christians together, they try to get some Protestants and some Catholics and some Orthodox Christians all together that can't agree on squat. They can agree on this. And we do this worldwide. So it's helpful for us to know the Apostles' Creed. There was another creed that was written around 500 CE called the, uh, the Athanasian Creed. Uh, came from the followers of Athanasius, who was an Egyptian bishop, um, that, that explains the Trinity. But it's long, like really long. So uh, we didn't use that today. But okay. So from Moses' day, to Jesus' day, to Paul's day, to the early church, the Trinity is essential. Even the creeds follow a Trinitarian structure. Uh, I want to show you a graphic that has been very helpful to me to understand the basics of the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Do you understand that? Yeah. If you took the, that outer level out, you could still fall into that heresy I mentioned earlier of modalism where you thought God kind of took different forms or different modes. But we want to say that they are distinct. It's three persons. And why do we use the term persons to describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because they, have, they are beings with personalities. Okay, They have thoughts, they have emotions, they make decisions. The Holy Spirit is not some sort of impersonal force like from Star Wars. The force, may the force be with you. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, can be pleased. I read uh, in Hebrews, he can be outraged, makes decisions, has a will. That's not a, that's not a force that floats in the spiritual atmosphere. That's, a, that's the way a person, not a human being, but a person with a personality uh, behaves. So three distinct persons or beings, we don't call them creatures. Why don't we call God a creature? Because that implies creation, that they were created. But God is not created. God has always been. So we refer to God as a person or a being, but not a creature. You're a creature, okay? Your cat's a creature, but God is not a creature. So Uh, we often will try to explain the Trinity through illustrations, uh, especially if you've ever tried to teach a kid about this. And I, and I've come into this many times with my own kids, they want to understand the Trinity. So a lot of times we'll pick some illustration, like we'll say, well, the Trinity is like an egg, An egg has a shell, the egg white and the yolk three parts, but one egg, right? Okay. I'm sorry to tell you this, but that's not a good illustration. Because God doesn't have three parts. Jesus is not part of God. The Holy Spirit is not part of God. The Father is not part of God. All three of them are fully God, yet there is one God. Does that make sense? So if you've been teaching your kid that the Trinity is like an egg, save those eggs for cooking. All right? Same, the same is true for that shamrock illustration. St. Patrick made this famous. You pull the shamrock, the three-leaf clover, and say... Three leaves, but one clover. Yeah, but none of those leaves is an entire clover unto itself. Same with, uh, the, with the water illustration. Liquid, gas, and ice. Water takes three forms. Okay, we've already said twice. God doesn't take forms. He's three, God is three persons. Uh, so with the illustrations, it's probably best to just either not use them or you can say, here's the point I'm trying to prove with this illustration, but it doesn't prove this point. It only proves this point. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, I'll be honest with you. I still explain the Trinity with, like, with water with my kids because they're little and I don't know what else to do. Because if I say, uh, we believe there is one God who is eternally, infinitely perfect and exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're just never going to listen to me again. They barely listen to me as it is, so uh, this is why are you guys still with me? Can I have like five more minutes? Yes. I got this stuff is important. This is why this matters. Okay, this is why this matters because the Trinity is actually that the Trinity in the New Testament, what we believe about the New Testament. This is what makes Christianity unique. Um, you will often hear it said: Christians, Jewish people, and Muslims. Worship the same God. So I would say to a Muslim, is your God Trinitarian? Meaning, is Jesus part of the Godhead? Is the Holy Spirit part of the Godhead? And they would say, no. I say, so that's not the same God. Right? Right. This also is different from Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. We had some... uh, Jehovah's Witnesses were knocking on the doors on our street yesterday, and I, was, I had all three kids for the first time in my life. And I, was, I had no shirt on. I was just wearing mesh shorts. I was wearing a Shays home uniform. I had, and I got Josiah slobbering. I mean, I'm glistening with baby slobber and hair. And I'm just wishing a Jehovah's Witness would knock on my door. Just like, I'll take your little Bible. You can have this kid, and let's talk this out. But, for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that... Uh, jesus has always existed and so you have to so when i discuss with them i'll say okay tell me about god god is a father okay has god how long has god been a father oh he's always been a father well if god's always been a father exactly he had to always have a son or else he became father but if he's always been father there's always been a son that's usually what gets my name on the list of do not come to this house again (laughs) list okay but listen this is what distinguishes biblical christianity from judaism islam you know we worship jesus hope you guys have picked up on this the first service wasn't sure we worship jesus (laughs) honestly I said do we worship jesus and they were all like i don't know i think i just scared them all this trinitarian stuff they're like i don't know what the right answer is okay we worship jesus here at true vine okay jesus is god okay if i walk into a mosque and say can we sing some jesus songs and they say no understandably that means we don't worship the same god same if i go into a synagogue right we don't worship the same god Uh, Even if I walk into a kingdom hall, they're not going to want to sing songs, worship Jesus, okay? Uh, What we have is superficial similarities with fundamental differences. We have superficial similarities with other religions. You know, we have a holy book, they have a holy book. We like Abraham, they like Abraham. Those are superficial. Fundamentally, we have differences. Don't get caught up on the superficial similarities and ignore the fundamental differences. Okay? Does that make sense? Now, if I can go back to my original point. Everyone's made in the image of God. They do not have to agree with your theology for you to treat them well. Is that, you following me? You don't have to agree with them to love them. So we don't treat people poorly or differently because we have a different theology we treat them well because they're made in the image of God and we believe that no matter who else believes it okay we got that clear okay um here's what i want to send you home with i put together a little handout that you probably got on your way in uh which is just an introduction to the trinity it looks like this if you got it on the way in This is like just dipping your toe in, guys. I mean, there's probably a hundred different passages I could have used to try to explain this, and I used uh, about ten of them this morning. Um, But this handout gives you another dozen or so that you can look at to begin the process of discovering the Trinity in Scripture. If you just pull out your Bible app or get your concordance and look up the word Trinity, you're not going to find it. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept is. Just like the word missionary is not in the Bible, but the concept of a missionary is in the Bible. Does that make sense? If you just cracked open Genesis and started reading the Bible cover to cover, you would come to several conclusions. Okay, there's only one God. These people in this book believed there's only one God. Check that off. Okay, they called that God Father. And then you get to the New Testament and you're like, Okay, 19 different passages refer to Jesus as God. So now I see that there's one God, but that God is Father and Son. They're not the same, but they're equal. And then keep reading, there's another half a dozen or so passages that were talked about the Holy Spirit being God, and you come to this conclusion. There is, okay, the Bible says there's one God. Jesus appears to be God, the Father appears to be God, the Holy Spirit appears to be God, they all three are distinct, yet there's only one God. If you can get to this picture, you can quit. You can just stop right there. You do not have to take it any further. If you, have, if you can wrap your head around this, you're doing great. If you try to take it further, you're probably actually going to violate it. Okay? So I want to just leave you with this. Diagram. I will share this in our church Facebook group this week, so that you can just get that tattooed or sew it into your shirt or whatever you want to do. Okay. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up front. You may have noticed that much of worship is trinitarian. Um, we say, we sing trinitarian songs. In fact, many people believe that when you read the phrase "Holy, Holy," holy in the Bible, that's actually a Trinitarian phrase that the, the angels and the seraphim are worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this affects our worship. And if we understand the Trinity right, it can affect our marriages. It affects church unity. It affects evangelism. I mean, this, this is not some little side doctrine. It's actually right meat and potatoes main stuff. We have to understand the Trinity, okay? So would you mind standing with me? We do acknowledge, Jesus, that there is mystery in understanding the Godhead, and we want to just be faithful in, with that ministry, not try to fill gaps that we don't need to fill. We trust you, God, that you love us and that you've given us everything that you need, that your scripture is sufficient uh, to give us everything that we need to know you and be saved. And I pray that in your name. Amen.
2: Forgiveness is in you Descended into darkness You rose in glorious light Ever seated in the I believe in God our Father I believe in Christ the Son I believe in the Holy Spirit is three in one I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again for I believe in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus let's declare and confess I believe Субтитры создавал
0: Trinity provides us with a lot of things, it instructs us how to worship, Uh, it instructs us even like how to be married. Uh, But it also instructs us how to have unity in the church, and so as we conclude we're going to have some time if you want to hang out and spend some time with one another, talk, grab something to eat, Uh, the Holy Spirit gives us fellowship with one another. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us fellowship, that we can have fellowship with you and with one another because as the Holy Spirit indwells us, it also in you indwell others. And our spirit can bless their spirit. We can edify and build up and encourage as we have fellowship together. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, feel free to hang out with us. You don't need to go home yet. See you next week.